This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. Researchers in several states have started giving healthy volunteers doses of experimental coronavirus vaccines. There are four of them being developed by Pfizer with a German partner, and they are unique. Most vaccines involve injecting patients with live virus. These experimental vaccines rely on the body's own genetic material. The clinical trials will determine which of them produce the strongest immune response. Dr. Mark Mulligan is the director of the NYU Langone Vaccine Center, which began testing in humans. And Doc, no trouble finding volunteers? Everyone anxious for the vaccine? We've had a phenomenal response. The, the, uh, it's been very uh, impressive how New Yorkers are looking to, I think, to want to fight back, to be altruistic, to help, to be part of the solution. What are these vaccines, these experimental vaccines that you're working with? It's a novel approach to vaccination. There's nothing currently licensed in this category. They're called messenger RNA vaccines. And it's very interesting. These are natural body substances that our cells use to signal production of new proteins. And so we're delivering a message, kind of like a text message. It uses a a four-letter alphabet, A-U-C-G, to tell the cell to make a protein. So we're making the vaccine protein in the body using this natural substance, messenger RNA. And when the cell gets that text, it makes the protein. And then the body's immune system makes antibodies, T cells, B cells. So that's the idea. We ask the body to be the factory to make the vaccine protein that's needed. And then we get an immune response, and and, uh, hopefully that would be one that would provide protection in the future. And that's different than most infectious diseases, right? Because don't you ordinarily work with live virus? Yeah, the vast majority of our uh, currently approved and licensed vaccines involve either uh, a live attenuated uh, virus or a whole killed uh, bacterium or virus. A few are component proteins like the hepatitis B vaccine or the HPV vaccine, where there just maybe one or two viral proteins are provided. Uh, but this is a novel approach providing uh, really a genetic blueprint to the cell and, and asking the cell to do the work of making the vaccine protein rather than delivering the vaccine protein in the shot. What's your sense of optimism here for how well it's going to work? Well, I'm an optimist by nature, and uh, I'm, in, I'm enthusiastic. But it's important to say that, you know, science doesn't require my or anybody's optimism or enthusiasm. The uh, investigation that we're doing, uh, if we do it properly, will give us the answer. And that's the beauty of science. You don't have to have faith or believe in it. You do the experiment, you do the investigation, and you get the data, and you get the answer. I think that this is very, very promising, and I I sure hope that it uh, provides us with protection. The first stages, of course, are safety, tolerability, and then measuring an immune response. And ultimately, we want to see protection. How long is this clinical trial going to take? The early stages uh, will take about four months. That'll get us into the fall. And sometime in the fall, if the vaccine is safe, well-tolerated, and produces a promising immune response, Uh, the efficacy testing could begin, and that would involve thousands of people. The earlier stages involve initially tens of people, then hundreds, and then you go to the large thousands of people stage. When we talk about traditional infectious disease vaccines involving live virus, sometimes there are shortages, sometimes manufacturers can't make enough. When you use genetic material, as in these experimental vaccines, 
How scalable are they if successful? One of the attractive features about RNA vaccines is that they can be rapidly produced, as you can see. Uh, one other candidate RNA vaccine began a trial a uh, month and a half ago. Now a second one is starting. Both of these just within months of the viral sequence becoming available in early January. So it's pretty remarkable the speed at which things are moving. And it's because these are uh, very suitable vaccine platforms for rapid responses, which is what we need in a pandemic. And then scalability is another feature. These can be produced uh, and can be produced in large uh, numbers of doses and fairly rapidly. So I, I think it's an encouraging technology from the point of view of speed and scalability. There is such a yen in the country to have a vaccine by the fall. That's what the president has talked about. Is that going to be possible? I think that if a vaccine does well in the early stages, that is, it's safe, it's tolerated, and it produces a promising immune response, we'd have enough information by fall, maybe September, to contemplate going into a, a large efficacy study that would enroll thousands of subjects. To get that final answer, does it protect, would take some time. So it, it is possible that in four months or in the fall, a vaccine would be ready to go into that final stage of testing. But then it'll take some more time to get the answer. Half the subjects will get vaccine, half will get placebo, they'll have to be followed for some time. The duration of time will depend on the amount of ongoing transmission there is. If there's still a lot of transmission, we'll get an answer quicker. If there's very little transmission, it'll take a lot longer. So some of this is a gray zone up in the air. We can't say with certainty, but my guess is that once that trial starts, it's going to take uh, a few months at least to uh, begin to get an answer about whether protection is provided or not. Dr. Mark Mulligan at the NYU Langone Vaccine Center, one of the testing sites for an experimental vaccine. One is so desperately desired because the infection rate is going up. Even in New York, where the rate is slowing, there were still 600 new cases in the last 24 hours. Governor Andrew Cuomo expressed surprise about who is still getting sick. They're not working. They're not traveling. They're predominantly downstate predominantly minority, predominantly older, predominantly non-essential employees. Meaning they're likely getting infected at home. In other states, the infection rate is climbing in counties where there are prisons or meatpacking facilities. Those have been petri dishes for COVID-19. And where the virus takes hold, death soon follows. The virus has already claimed 71,000 American lives, and a new projection from the University of Massachusetts predicts an average of 10,000 deaths per week for the next month and a half. Amid all the consequences of that, there is one that may be less obvious, if no less sad. Sympathy cards are nearly sold out. Alan Friedman runs Great Arrow Graphics in Buffalo. He's a board member of the Greeting Card Association. Absent in-person condolences, Alan, text messages just seem insufficient. It's the one category, perhaps, that has not been supplanted by um, modern ways of communicating. I think that sending a sympathy message needs to be done in a heartfelt way and uh, text uh, Facebook timeline postings are probably not adequate um, on a good day uh, to reach out to someone who's suffered uh, the loss of someone they love. The ability to write uh, is rising to the surface, I think, in a way that it hasn't uh, before. That It's just not the time uh, that one wants to uh, text your feelings. And so we spend a lot of time doing sympathy cards in our company. It's always been a big thing for us. 
Um, and I personally spend a lot of time writing copy um, and developing copy for our cards, which have very small amounts of copy. We're not a we're not a company that makes poems on the insides of our cards. The messages are short, and they're designed to try and stimulate someone to say what needs to be said. Have those messages changed in a time of coronavirus? You no, know, I would not say that they've changed. I think our cards hold up well at this point in time. What has changed, though, is certain topics which we have had in our line for many years, encouragement, thinking of you, cards that are just not big sellers uh, on a good day, have all of a sudden come out of the woodwork uh, and been ordered. And we're seeing these orders specifically on direct-to-consumer sales uh, through our website. Um, our stores are closed, which is the the reason for this whole crisis in New York City. I mean, all the places where you go to buy uh, greeting cards, with the exception of supermarkets and drugstores, are closed. Uh, bookstores are closed. Gift stores are closed. So that's putting the pressure on the stocks in uh, in you know mass uh, kind of grocery locations. And they're they're sold out. Would you mind? I don't know if you have any on the brain. Could you give me an example or two of a couple of sympathy card messages that you write? I can I can do that. There's one that I choose uh, most of the time. It's one of the oldest cards in our line. The front of it is a very simple, abstracted floral shape, and on the inside it says, "The beauty of a life well lived is that it's never forgotten." The families of 71,000 Americans who have died of coronavirus will indeed not forget. Our thanks to Alan Friedman at Great Arrow Graphics in Buffalo. And coming up, more on vaccines with our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton. I'm Aaron Katursky, and you're listening to an ABC News special. You're listening to an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. With me now is ABC chief medical correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, President Trump told our David Muir that he is less optimistic about a vaccine by January. We know that you were personally invited by Dr. Fauci Mm -hmm. to visit the NIH back in February to see how they were working on a vaccine. Yeah. What do we know about vaccines at this point? Well, so much attention on this, Amy. Let's do a little bit of a deeper dive on what's involved here in vaccines. First of all, it's important to remember the context here. To develop any vaccine, this is a process that normally takes decades of time. To date, there has been no coronavirus vaccine that's been developed so far for humans. There have been ones for animals. There are ones that our dogs can get even right now. Um, In terms of the fastest vaccine that's ever been developed, it took four years. And 12 to 18 months, as we've heard repeatedly, is absolutely the minimum time period that it would take to develop a vaccine. The good news, though, is that because of the work that had been done on SARS, about 80 percent of the groundwork had already kind of been done. So it it primed the pump, Mm. so to speak, for the vaccine development for COVID-19. All right. And right now we know there are four different types of vaccines being tested or in development right now. But what are some of the issues facing that? So those four classes of vaccines, it's it's the, their mechanism of action. It's how they work. So people are trying different approaches. But right now, the big question is, if one is found to be safe and effective, then you're talking about scaling up to 
potentially billions for the world, right? And if that happens, will certain countries hoard the supplies, literally the doses of the vaccine? The good news is, is that this is really unprecedented. We have global collaboration, people working across country lines to help develop this vaccine. And interestingly, there may be a way to expedite that 12 to 18 month process if you kind of do things in parallel rather than in sequence. So people getting ready to manufacture, even though they don't even have the science yet. And in terms of its safety, it was pretty fascinating to hear that they're not actually even injecting the virus proteins themselves. There is still so much right. that we need to learn. Talk about what we don't know. Well, for that one vaccine, correct, that mRNA vaccine. But again, when you hear about clinical trials, the first part is generally safety, then it's efficacy. And in terms of what we don't know, we still don't know if we develop one for this. Will we need a different one every year like we do for influenza? And will it be safe? not just short-term, but long-term, and how effective will it be when you hear people like the World Health Organization and Dr. Anthony Fauci say, we don't know if being exposed or infected with COVID-19 gives you long-term immunity. That same principle applies to vaccine efficacy. So a lot we still don't know. That makes a lot of sense. All right, Dr. Jen, we will check back in with you a little later in the show. Thank you. Right now, we are awaiting a ruling from the Wisconsin Supreme Court over a lawsuit filed by the Republican-controlled legislature seeking to halt the state's coronavirus-related stay-at-home order. So here to discuss this is Lieutenant Governor of Wisconsin, Mandela Barnes. Lieutenant Governor, thanks for being with us. And we know that the the Wisconsin Supreme court just heard our oral arguments yesterday. You said that the lawsuit itself is inherently reckless. Tell us why. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, I will, would like to say that this is a reckless lawsuit because lives are still being put at risk. We're not where we need to be before we can start uh, lifting parts of the safer at home order. But that's why we created our Badger Bounce Back plan to set a certain or to outline certain metrics that would get us to a place where we can do a gradual reopening of everything that our state has to offer. But to simply say no, uh, we are going to or the Supreme Court would like to suspend the order uh, at this moment is, in fact, reckless. I hope that they don't make that decision. The decision hasn't come down yet. Uh, There's still time for them to do the right thing. And I hope that they will do the right thing and consider uh, the amount of infections that we have, the amount of the number of lives that have been lost. We've lost over 350 people here in the state of Wisconsin already. Right. And so my next question is, what is your contingency plan if the court does rule in favor of the legislature and against the governor? Well, we're still going to encourage people to do the right thing and stay home to make sure they're working to stop the spread. Uh, we're also going to work with our partners, uh, whether it's in the you know, private industry or whether it's you know, nonprofit groups and churches also and religious organizations that have written letters that supported uh, the governor's stance on being safer at home. Uh, so if this is overturned. We're going to make sure that we're working with people uh, and convincing them and, and when working with them to make sure that they are uh, can go to a safe workplace to make sure that our, our school systems aren't going to be uh, in trouble across the state. Uh, it's going to take a, a different approach uh, than we've taken so far, but that's fine because the majority of people in Wisconsin understand that this is about health. It's about safety, and they are already doing the right thing voluntarily. You look at so many organizations and businesses that stepped up before the Safer Home order was in place, people who've asked for us to uh, put an order in place uh, before you know it got so bad that we had to do this. And you look at the, the regional approach that we're taking as well with states like Illinois, Michigan, Minnesota, 
Uh, we all want to go about this uh, in a concerted way because there are only uh, the borders that separate us uh, won't separate any person, any individual uh, from the virus. I love the name of your plan in terms of getting things to slowly reopen. You call it the Badger Bounce Back Plan. Tell us about it. Yeah, so the Badger Bounce Back Plan sets a uh, set of six different metrics for us to meet uh, before we can reopen. At this point, we've actually uh, gotten it to, and on the state's uh, Department of Health Services website, there's a uh, an easy-to-read, easy-to-comprehend red light, green light system that shows which benchmarks that we've already achieved. And the two of those being the decrease or the downward trend in influenza-like illnesses being reported, and also the amount of uh, healthcare workers who have been infected. Uh, so that's two. We still got a long way to go. Completely understanding that, and we've been doing the right thing. If we didn't put the uh, safer home in place, we would have lost hundreds of lives. And by putting in place, we save lives, and we need to continue to save lives because communities now uh, across Wisconsin, more rural areas of the state, are seeing infections. But that's because testing is now in place. We hadn't had adequate testing before, and people went about their lives not knowing that they were infected. You know, given the asymptomatic transmission and also the lack of testing. And that is a part of the Badger Bounce Back Plan criteria as well, to make sure that we can test 85,000 people per week. Now, we are up there when it comes uh, to testing capacity, but the actual number of people who have been tested, we're not there yet. But we do have the ability, and that's why we've created some uh, drive-in testing sites across Wisconsin, especially in more rural parts. And then we did that in Wisconsin first, or excuse me, in Milwaukee first with five different uh, health centers because that's where the outbreak was. And we're looking at uninsured populations, people that don't have a primary care physician. And we're saying, hey, come in, get tested. Let's make sure that you're safe. Let's make sure you're keeping the rest of the community safe. And you can get what you need to get. And we've expanded that to other parts of the state. And where we see breakouts, we intend to do that. Uh, in Brown County now, they represent almost a sixth of the total transmissions. They're the third largest county in Wisconsin, and that was at a meat processing facility. And, you know, that just shows us that we aren't out of the woods yet. And we see these little outbreaks popping up across Wisconsin, and we have to respond appropriately. Uh, additionally, we have to make sure there is enough PPE equipment available for healthcare workers and people who are going to be treating the sick. We have to make sure that our hospital system uh, is not overrun. And, you know, we're just not there yet. But we are making significant strides. We're doing the right things. It's a challenge. It's not easy. I'm not going to I'm not going to sit here and pretend like this is a cakewalk. Uh, this is uh, something that's going to require an all hands on deck approach. And that means that people need to remain safer at home. That means that the Supreme Court needs to understand the urgency of this situation. It is an emergency and we have to act as such. We can't just do the things that we want to do because we would be making life much more difficult for, for so many people, for people who didn't even who didn't need to be in the healthcare system in the first place uh, because of an illness. We see people who are afraid uh, to, to go in because, you know, whatever uh, they have that is not COVID related, they don't want to they don't want to get the illness. They don't want to be spreading it to other folks. And we have a we have a responsibility. We have an opportunity to lead this nation. I think that we are doing uh, a good job. And I hope that the Supreme Court understands that as well. Uh, there's nothing more important than the lives of the people who live here and across this country and around the world. Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, thank you for being with us. Yep, thank you.
And there is much more ahead here on what you need to know. The canine front line, the dogs who may change the game when it comes to tracking down new cases of coronavirus. We're back in a moment. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Well, it's time now to take a good look at a lot of your medical questions that have been pouring in for our Dr. Jen Ashton. So Dr. Jen joining us now, and we'll get straight to the first question. If a person has been confirmed positive for the virus and has recovered for two weeks, should they be good to go outside without a mask? No. We, remember, this is a new concept that everyone should be wearing a face covering. And again, the science isn't totally in behind it, but that is the CDC recommendation right now. It does represent a major shift. But the point is a couple of things with this question. Number one, we don't know how long someone who's truly been infected with COVID-19 can transmit or spread the virus. In other words, how long can they be infectious or contagious? That is unknown. And there have been some cases that go out longer than 14 days. And again, Again, remember the concept. It's not to protect that person. We are supposed to be wearing masks to protect others. So remember, it's not about me. It's about we. So, yes, that still applies. All right. Next question. I have heard that shouting, yelling can actually cause the virus to spread more. Is this true? It could be. So we all need to start whispering now. (laughs) Um, So this is really interesting. There was an experimental study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So people can go and, and look at that. They took an amazing fluorescent image of the particles that are spewed into the air when people yell. Um, or shout, and they can go up to 26 feet. Now, we don't know whether that means that the coronavirus viral particles can survive that long, but they definitely can propel that long. So when we used to say put a mask on a sick person who's coughing or sneezing, now it's thought to extend to breathing, talking, yelling, singing, shouting. So, yeah, the more force you put behind that, potentially the more viral particles and the farther it can go. So we need to start whispering. From fluorescent viral particles to this (laughs) next question, I hope no one's eating at home. What is COVID toe? This is an interesting observation now. It actually came to light from the dermatologist who started to see a lot of this unusual skin finding, usually in the toes, but it could also be in the fingers, discoloration, ulceration, in some cases pain, sometimes mimicking frostbite. It's a condition called chillblains. Um, we don't know whether that's an immune response, a blood vessel clotting response. We don't know for sure that it's even definitely in association with COVID-19, but it's being observed. And that's the first step in in medicine is making an observation. All right. Next question. As testing becomes readily available, should we still be waiting for first responders and those with clear symptoms to be tested first? Well, I love where this person's heart is because, yes, we have to protect first responders and healthcare workers in terms of their ability to get tested first because that our safety depends on that. But right now we should be seeing more access, more availability of testing for the average person, um, you know, at medical centers, at hospital emergency rooms, hopefully soon at Urgicare. Um, but remember, it's not just about getting a test for every single person in the country. The reagents in those tests Everyone in the world needs that. So that's why we may be seeing a bottleneck at some point. 
Okay, Dr. Jen Ashton, thank you, you as bet. always. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J Ashton. Well, dogs possess an incredible sense of smell. We know that. They can even be trained to sniff out diseases. So what about using them to detect COVID-19 in humans? That is the focus of a new study. And joining us to talk about it is the director of the Working Dog Center at the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Cindy Otto. Dr. Otto, thanks for being with us. And yes, we've heard about dogs helping detect things like cancer and malaria, but how does it actually work? How do they do it? So that's a great question. And what we know is that diseases have an odor. And sometimes it's actually the disease agent itself. And sometimes it's the body's response to the disease. And sometimes it's a combination. We often don't know what it is. But a person with a, a specific disease actually has a unique odor that we are able to train dogs to recognize. That is remarkable. So tell us about the study you're spearheading specifically on COVID-19. So what we're trying to do here is we're trying to take our experience with ovarian cancer detection and other medical detection and really apply it to COVID-19. What we are doing now is first question, is there a unique disease profile, an odor profile with COVID-19? We especially want to know if that profile will show up early in the asymptomatic patients. So step number one, just can the dog test and tell us that there is an odor associated with that? Step number two, can they tell if a person actually is carrying that odor? Those are sick, but they're actually carrying the odor. And then finally, what we would think about is, can we take this to what we would call an operational setting where we would be able to use the dogs as an adjunct screening tool if patients or if individuals um, are positive for COVID-19? Can you walk us through how you train them to sniff for something specific? Absolutely. So the way we do it is we take a sample. And in this case, um, and in case, many of our other cases, we take a sample from the diseased patient. So we have a sample um, from that patient in our ovarian cancer. It's a blood sample. With the COVID-19, we're looking at whether or not it's going to be the best sample will be urine or saliva or breath or sweat or something else. And what we do is we have the dog sniff a little a container that contains that sample. Now, just to realize, we are really attentive to the dog face all of this. All of our training and our testing, we're working with inactivated virus, so there's no chance of exposure for the person or the dog. But what we do is we allow the dog to sniff, and the, and the odor is in a container that doesn't allow the dog to actually have contact with that biological sample. When they sniff, suddenly they get a treat. Pretty cool. Yeah. And so we do that a couple of times, and then they start to go, hey, I sniffed this, I get a treat. I can do that. But then we show them a sample from somebody who doesn't have the disease, and they don't get a treat. And then the wheels start to turn, and they go, oh, there's something different about this sample. So I'm going to look for that thing that's different, and then I get a treat. And so as we introduce more and more samples, they start to realize, oh, all of the samples that I get a treat for have this odor, this common signature, where the other ones don't. And that's how we start to train the dog. So we don't actually know what the odor is, but the dogs can figure it out. Wow, it is fascinating. So all of that said, how accurate do you believe fully trained dogs can be on COVID-19? So on COVID-19, we don't have any data yet, uh, but we, we know from other diseases is that the dogs can be 85, 90, even 95 percent accurate. 
a lot of it depends on the training and the environment and how we deploy them and what, what kind of environment they're working in. But I think we have a really good opportunity to make a huge difference where this is going to really impact our ability to identify those hopefully asymptomatic carriers. It really is incredible work. Thank you so much for sharing it with us and for your time today, Dr. Otto. We appreciate it. Happy to be part of this. Thanks. This ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Just weeks before living with COVID-19 became our new normal, Naomi Campbell raised some eyebrows with a video highlighting her travel hygiene routine. It showed the supermodel carefully sanitizing her seat on a plane, wearing a face mask, and this was long before they were required. Well, that video quickly went viral, and we're so happy to have Naomi Campbell with us here today to tell us about that and so much more. And Naomi, I know a lot of people are going to be following your lead now as they start to take to the skies again. How much has that routine made a difference for you? It hasn't really made a difference for me. I've been doing that routine routine close to 18, 19, 20 years. I started wearing a mask a long time ago, and that was up the influence of going to Japan and working there a lot and just seeing that that was part of the culture. So I thought it made sense, so I started wearing them as I traveled. Yeah, you're way ahead of the game, and we're all following your lead now. During this quarantine, you've also been live daily on Instagram. I love this. You're working out with your trainer. What's your message to those thousands who are tuning in and watching you and being inspired by you? My message really is just to be positive, to keep your mind, body, and spirit in a healthy place in the light. As you're hearing, I'm sure that you know that it's a lot of it affects a lot of people um, mentally and depression is setting in, anxiety is getting higher and blood pressure is getting higher. So it's really trying to just keep yourself in a place of calm. And I feel like you working out and working the body and getting the blood flow and circulation, it's all important. It all matters, all, all connected. It certainly does. And we all have, yes, a lot more time on our hands. And that means we can binge watch you as a judge on the new Amazon reality <laughs> show, Making the Cut. One review says you were born to be a reality show judge. Tell us how you got involved in the fashion competition. Heidi actually asked me, Heidi Klum, to be involved in, to, if I could do making the cut and because of you know i always think these shows take months and months and months i did do my own show called the face once and we did uh new york london and australia sydney and so i thought if it's going to take two months at a time i won't be able to do it anyway they changed dates Mm -hmm. that we scheduled and it worked out and so i was happy to do it and it was a lot of fun but most important for me when i do these shows it's about the design. It's about the person that's going to get the mentoring and learn the skill to enhance what it is that they're passionate about. I love that. We really appreciate your time today. Naomi Campbell, thank, thank you so you much. Thank you so much, Amy. As millions of the nation's school teachers are navigating a whole new world, educating online during the coronavirus pandemic, we are putting some of those homeschool heroes in the spotlight. First up, the Maryland teacher using hip hop to help kids learn. Hey, students. Hey, students. Let's do this. Uh, my name is Michael Doggett. 
I work at Halliwell's Middle School, which is in Clarksburg, Maryland. I started off as an English and reading teacher, but have since found my niche in teaching hip hop. So my school is a little bit unique because we really value creativity and kind of thinking outside the box. So we have this program called Empower Hour, which is where the hip hop program started. I've been creating songs and making music videos with students for a number of years now. We had a couple of projects that stopped when the closure uh, happened and it's really hard to continue them. So I had to sort of figure out another way to channel that creativity that I have and then also like be able to highlight what the students are doing too. There's a special thing that happens when you bond together through music. I really wanted to find some way to continue that while we were out of school. The idea of just like thinking outside the box and giving them a chance to respond in a way that maybe the classroom wouldn't allow them to in the first place. Hey students, what you been doing? How many pairs of PJs have you ruined? When I started giving them sort of like questions and prompts these last few weeks, I was blown away by the things that I got. My students feel really engaged. My, my students feel really connected. Mr. Doggett got the funky rhymes. COVID virtual learning all the time. We beat Zeb and Devin. He's a great teacher and can be repping. My students see a value in this because it's my authentic self and it's who I was to them before the closure and so it makes sense that it's who I am to them now. I just want to let you know that you're my favorite teacher. You're always so positive and give everyone such great suggestions. Teachers create magic because they've been building these relationships with their students since the beginning of the year. You know, right now that magic doesn't just stop. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's saving not it's saving me during this time too because I need this to get through this as, as, as much as they do. To be able to have that connection, be able to have that like back and forth with students has really been just as great for me as it has been for them. Ah, oh, that is beautiful. Our thanks to Michael Doggett for his story and to all of the teachers out there. I can speak for most parents. You have never been more appreciated than you are right now. Well, coming up next here, the crisis hit, becoming new again and inspiring others to be of service as well. The stars flocking to the new cover of If the World Was Ending. We'll be right back. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. You were listening to the new star-studded cover version of the hit song, If the World Was Ending, raising money for a very good cause. Here to tell us all about it are the song's two original writers and the performers themselves, Julia Michaels and J.P. Sachs. J.P., you originally released If the World Was Ending with Julia last year, and it was inspired by the California earthquake. When did you realize that people were now associating this song with the pandemic? Yeah, well, we started seeing a lot of messages on social media asking if we had some sort of insider information. <laughs> a lot of conspiracy theories. <laughs> I can assure everyone that we, we had no idea. Um, we did not write the song about this on purpose. But it certainly does fit. And, Julia, I know the video right now has a lot of big names in it. You've got Sam Smith, Keith Urban, Alessia Cara, to just name a few. How did you make it all happen in these times? Well... A lot of our friends had actually posted covers of it just because it was resonating with everybody so much. 
And, you know, we just saw it happening and we thought, why don't we actually utilize this in a way that helps people? So we ended up reaching out to a bunch of our friends and, you know, I'm not, I'm not the kind of person to like ask our friends favors. So it was pretty nerve wracking. <laughs> um, but everyone that we asked wanted to be included and involved. And it was really special just seeing it all come together. Yeah, because you were doing it for a good cause. JP, you put the special cover version together to benefit Doctors Without Borders. And I understand you have a personal connection to that organization, yes? Yeah, at the end of the video, you, uh, you see Crystal, who works with them, talking about their work. And her and I have been friends for almost a decade. I think for both Julie and I, you know, we believe that feeling like you can't do a lot is a bad reason not to do a little. And we weren't really sure how much good this video would do, but we knew it would at least do a little, and that would be more than nothing. And, you know, there's a donate button right on the video. And if everyone who watches it donated a dollar, we would do a whole lot of good. Yeah, that's wonderful. Every little bit counts. It's so incredible. It's a wonderful song. We love it. JP and Julia, thank you. And we wish you the very best as you're quarantining there together. We have our final thoughts now with our Dr. Jen Ashton. As I was listening to that, I was thinking so much of where we are now is focused on where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. And I think that the tip, I heard a great acronym from a psychologist to help us guide through this time, APE, APE, which stands for Attitude, Preparation, and Effort. So your attitude is, where have we been? Where are we now? Where are we going? What kind of attitude do you look down the road at with, with positivity, with hope, um, and even with gratitude? Preparation, what do we need to do to be prepared to live with this virus for the next three months, six months, a year? indefinitely, and then your effort. How much can we do to protect ourselves, to protect those around us going forward? I think APE will make all the difference. Um, it's something that I've been reminding myself of every single day. I love it. Dr. Jen, thank you very much. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. ABC News, honored. Winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards, ABC News, America's number one news choice. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.